my goal now is not that I would just um, explain the mechanics of the biblical text, including the Greek and Hebrew, but my goal now is that people would float out of church, caught up in the grace and glory of Christ, thinking, I want to live for the Lord this week. Hey guys, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 122. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and I'm really glad that you've decided to listen to this conversation that I get to have with uh, Pastor Ray Ortland. It's a bit of a challenge to introduce you to Ray Ortland if you aren't already familiar with him. And uh, the reason why is because um, this guy is prolific. If I were to rattle off his degrees, uh, books, and accomplishments, it would take quite a while. Um, I'm just going to say that he is has been ordained into, into Christian ministry since 1975. He leaves behind him a long legacy of faithfulness, and he is one of my favorite preachers, to be honest. So I was thrilled to be able to speak to him over Zoom and to record it and now to present it and share it uh, with you all. Ray and I speak about uh, the importance of gospel doctrine and um, connecting um, all of the little stories in the Bible with the great big story of the rescue of sinners through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the restoration of all things. Uh, we speak about that and then transition into speaking about how really truly believing and preaching this gospel doctrine creates a kind of safety and a culture of grace in our congregations or in the um, Bible study groups that we lead, the women's ministries, even the youth groups that we lead. Uh, Ray believes that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. So I know that you're going to enjoy this episode. I sure did enjoy having the conversation in the first place. I'm going to chime in again at the end and also have a preview for next week's episode as well. So make sure you keep listening after the conversation ends. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective Podcast helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's Word. Uh, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I am privileged to be with Pastor Ray Ortland. Um, Ray, thanks for joining us on this fine Tuesday morning. It's a privilege to be with you. Thanks for letting me on. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. Um, so, Ray, I've got some some questions to you about your, like, preaching career, if you want to call that. But but first, can I just start with a, a random question? Uh, I want to ask you, why do you like the film What About Bob? And what is your... <laughs> What's your favorite scene in What About Bob? Yeah, I think when the family is having dinner on the um, on the deck and Bob's asking, is this corn hand shucked? You know? <laughs> and he's rhapsodizing about this this food and he he's sort of 
this wonderfully hilarious and ridiculous positive overreaction to a fairly simple human situation. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, I, I saw that film like when it came out in, in the early nineties and, and I was a much younger person back then. And I thought it was kind of funny. And in doing some research for this interview, I, I saw that you, you have seen that film many times and I thought, I'll just watch it. To, and so I, I watched it last night with my wife. And I think watching it as like a grown up is a whole lot different than watching it as as a child. Huh. Did you enjoy it? So well, I enjoyed it, but also groaned. I, I find myself groaning like in, in sympathetic agony several times. But yes, I did enjoy it. So thank you for kind of reminding me of that film and causing me to, to look into it again. I appreciate that. Well, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, hey, so moving from one maybe like grown worthy memory to per perhaps another, uh, the question I always start these episodes with is asking preachers if they can maybe remind us or bring this bring us into their first sermon that they ever preached. Um, so, Ray, when was the first time that you got to teach and preach the Bible and how did it go? I, you know, it's a great question. I can't remember the first time, but um uh, I, fortunately, I think that's God's mercy. But uh, several years ago, I found a box of hard copy sermons of mine from the 1980s. And um, I, was, I was ordained in 1975. These sermons were from about 10 to 15 years later. And it was actually, <laughs> talk about groan-worthy. It was painful to look back at these uh, sermons from the 1980s. I was being faithful to what I knew at the time. I was doing the best I knew how at the time, and God was so kind, I didn't actually succeed in killing that poor church I was uh, serving as pastor. And, um, but I, I, I did not realize how clunky and academic and technical and tedious and non-gospely my preaching was back then. I, I was, it was, I was very interested in the mechanics of the biblical text. Sure, What's sure. happening in the text? And that's great. But that should have been buried in, the, not buried, it should have been left in my study and translated more into preaching that would actually help people. Yeah. And when you, when you say hard copies, do you mean like um, printed out notes or is the, are these like cassettes? No, I meant, yeah, like printed out. I mean, I did these on a typewriter, um, actual pieces of paper, you know, um, and full manuscripts. Um, but I read uh, Samuel uh, Mark Rutherford's book, The Revolution in Tanner's Lane, several years ago, a 19th century uh, novel. And there's such a compelling section there where the hero of the story says, if your religion doesn't help you, it is not the religion for you. You better be rid of it as soon as possible. And years ago, I would have found that objectionable, but I think it's a valid point. And my desire now, as I hope a more mature minister and preacher, is to help people through and according to the scriptures, by the grace of God, for his glory, but... My goal now is not that I would just um, explain the mechanics of the biblical text, including the Greek and Hebrew, but my goal now is that people would float out of church, caught up 
in the grace and glory of Christ, thinking, I want to live for the Lord this week. So that's a different yeah. kind of preaching. So you don't mean that you're going to skip the mechanics of the Greek and Hebrew or, or leave behind all that you've learned in your study. But, but what do you mean? How, how have things changed now? How can we cause people to, to float? Or if, if we can cause it, but how, how can we aim for a floating experience rather than an educational one? Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it, Mike. Um, I, was a, I was good as an educator. I was not good as a pastor and helper. Um, I, and I didn't even know the difference. But here's, here's how I think of it. I, I even think of it in, the, the, in terms of the day-by-day -day flow of a typical week of sermon preparation. Monday, I take off religiously. If, if I didn't take Monday off, Jenny would kill me. So I want to be careful. <laughs> the church doesn't want a dead preacher. So my work week starts Tuesday morning early. Tuesday morning, I work hard in the text. And I made a big commitment in seminary to study the original languages. And I, I, I still use the languages. And so in Tuesday, I'm in the Greek text, the Hebrew text, whatever. Wednesday morning, and I'm consulting grammars and concordances and all that clunky technical work, which is really quite, it's actually amazingly fun. Wednesday morning, I'm consulting commentaries, theologies, perhaps uh, printed sermons, maybe Spurgeon and others, Jim Boyce and others, commentaries. I'm, I'm interacting with other people on the text. So Tuesday, I dig into the text. Wednesday morning, interact with others on the text. Thursday morning, uh, write a rough draft of the sermon. And I find, as you do, I'm sure, Mike, that my mind, when I'm not explicitly involved in sermon prep, I'm having lunch with somebody, I'm in a meeting, going to the hospital, whatever, my mind is still working. And so in the, in the time la that lap elapses between formal sermon preparation, the next time I come back to it, I'm already further down the road because my mind is never actually shut off. So Thursday morning, I'm ready for a rough draft. Friday morning, I'm, I'm, I revise that, polish that. Uh, as the week goes on, there's a, there's a cumulative effect, more and more insights at all levels, exegesis, pastoral theology, application, everything. It's all increasing. Saturday morning, another polish. Sunday morning early, another polish. So what, <laughs> what's really annoying is when my best ideas occur to me on Sunday afternoon, and I really don't <laughs> want that to happen very often. That's why I start early in the week. My mind needs time and my mind needs multiple exposures to funnel down to a sermon by Sunday morning that will lift people up, that will put hope in their hearts and, and, and energy in their, in their feet and, and steel in their spine and joy in their hearts. So it takes time and, and every day has a purpose. And those multiple, multiple exposures really do help me push the ball down the field toward the goal line. And so it sounds like you're, you're interacting with, with people, visiting the hospital, et cetera, almost like carrying this in your back pocket, as it were. And, and does that allow you to, to make connections to, to real life um, throughout the week? And of course, forgive me for, for implying that the Bible isn't real life, but the, the experience of, our, of your hearers in congregation. A hospital visit is part of sermon preparation. Yeah. 
It's a very significant part. It's an essential part, along with everything else. So, um, the, the, the problem is not the Bible. The Bible is a resource. The problem is me. And the underdeveloped man that I am, the underdeveloped understandings I bring to the text and to the people. And sermon preparation, along with everything else, is part of a, in God's mercy, it's a, a, a ray-expanding experience where in the course of, I start out as a small, narrow, um, unformed man with very vague concepts. And what happens is the Lord guides me, shepherds me through the week toward clarity, specificity, focus, intentionality, and it greatly increased joy. Then I'm ready to preach. So you're, would you say that there's, first off, you want to be impacted and shaped by it so that others can be shaped and impact through you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have to be very honest with myself. And if I'm writing out a, a, a point in my sermon, a paragraph, whatever, I have to stop and, <clears throat> and ask myself, okay, Ray, is, is this what you believe because you think it's right? Or does this really help you? And if I have to be, uh, if I have to admit in honesty, this doesn't really help me. I don't even know why I'm saying this. I mean, it's formally obligatory, but personally not liberating, not energizing, then why am I saying it? I'm not ready yet. That's, I'm still not ready to preach if that's where I am mentally. Okay, so this is is filtering through your week and filtering through your life and and impacting or reshaping or reforming your heart. Because you said earlier, your goal is to cause people to, maybe I'm quoting you correctly, to kind of float out of the service with this liberating experience of of hearing the good news of of God. Um, This maybe connects with something that I'd like to ask you. Um, Back in June, you tweeted something that I had to scroll back and, and find. Um, you referenced John eleven forty four, where Jesus is speaking outside the, the tomb of Lazarus. And after he first speaks the word to Lazarus, um, Lazarus come forth. Then he turns to the others and says, unloose him and let him go. Uh, you drew a connection between that phrase, unloose him and let him go, with the way that preachers should be preaching. Can you unfold that or unpack that a little bit for our hearers? It's interesting. The Lord called Lazarus back to life. And then, as you point out, Mike, invited the others around him to join with him, to unbind him and let him go. To He didn't say to Lazarus, tear off those grave clothes. Wow. But a healthy church is a culture of liberation where we are helping one another get rid of these grave clothes that we've been wearing all our lives that have never helped us at all. And we're hearing the life-giving, resurrecting voice of Christ in the gospel and helping one another get free to live for him and glorify him as never before. So powerful preaching is not just a captivating personality on stage with his Bible open. Powerful preaching is a whole congregation, a whole church, a whole community, which has, by God's grace, stumbled its way into the life-giving power of Jesus through his voice in the gospel. And together, 
They are not a culture of oppression. They're not a culture of shaming. They're not cornering people, pressuring people, embarrassing people. They have, that's just the opposite of the gospel. And they know it. And the whole congregation is rejoicing to gather together on the Lord's day to help one another, encourage one another, liberate one another, get rid of the vestiges of death we've been lugging around all these years and we don't want anymore. Now that's when preaching is, when you have a guy, a pastor on, on, at the front of the church in the pulpit whose Bible is open, so he has some authority and he's saying what the Bible says and he is preaching through a gospel hermeneutic so that Jesus and his gospel are every Sunday the great message and the Holy Spirit is moving in power and the congregation knows what to do and how to respond and how not to respond. That's very powerful. Yes. Yes, it is. And, and I love, I'd like to talk in a few minutes about that culture of liberation. Um, but, but before we get into to that, um, allow me to, to maybe read that tweet because I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on this. So you, you say, you, you reference the unbind him and let him go, and you, you say that sermons shouldn't end with a challenge or pressure, but with new life, liberation, room for movement. Uh, later on, you say that um, like challenge is law, assurance is grace, and that people shall be hushed with awe and deeply helped as they just hear that good news of the gospel again and again. Well, what has the Lord called us to as preachers? Are we coaches helping Christians upgrade their Christianity from six to seven on a scale of one to 10? And the next week from seven to eight, or maybe trying to maintain an eight rather than fall back to us. What is that what the Lord has called us to? I don't believe that. Uh, We are not coaches helping Christians upgrade or maintain their performance as Christians. We are voices lifting up Christ in his grace and glory, pointing to him, showing people what he has done for them. And are there practical implications? Sure, but if that's the great emphasis of our ministry, we have lost our way. Um, I come from a tradition that I'm, still a part of and, and love, but there's a great emphasis in my own tradition on the pastor as teacher, that there is, um, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, like teaching um, God's word in its context. And yes, I believe that. And, you know, that's one of the, the gifts in Ephesians 4, you know, is pastor teacher. Yet, we're called to, I love how you're saying yeah, these voices or meant to be lifters or these great encouragers or reminding people again and again of the wonderful facts of the gospel and how, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 has some wonderful things in it, but unconnected from that great rhythm of the gospel and the kindness, and the grace of God, it could merely only just be an informative talk on what Paul wrote on that day. And a, a guy can build a ministry by really, really interesting, informative talks about the Bible. Uh, people will come because the Bible is fascinating and people who love the Lord want to know the Bible. Uh, and people will be sitting there with their Bibles open and they'll be cheering you on and that's great. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing what the Lord has really called you to do. Because when we talk about preaching the Bible 
in its context, what is the context? Absolutely. The, the context is multi-layered. So there is an historic context when Isaiah, for example, 8th century BC, he, he spoke in his context. But the book of Isaiah is its ultimate context is not the 8th century BC. Its ultimate context is the Bible itself. And the whole Bible from cover to cover funnels down toward Jesus and his gospel. Isaiah himself believed that. Read chapter 40. Jesus himself said, Isaiah saw, saw my day and rejoiced in it. So the real context for all preaching from the Bible is not just the passage itself, but how that passage is one more angle of vision looking forward toward Jesus and his gospel in its fullness in the New Testament. That's the context. And when we understand that, something happens to us. I, I remember reading several years ago, it came out four or five years ago, the wonderful book by Sinclair Ferguson entitled The Whole Christ. And he talks there about the Merrow controversy of the 18th century and how the pastors in Scotland during that difficult time, some of them just sort of groping along, stumbled into the grace of God at a deeper level. And he said it changed the tone of their ministries. Tone is one of the most revealing indicators in a pastor's work. Uh, both the, the solid content that we preach and the tone with which he pre we, with which the ethos, the vibe, the feel, the intangibles of a man's persona, the intangibles of his voice, his manner. It's not just that the content should be defined by the gospel, but the whole man, the preacher, the whole, the man who he is, the way he speaks, how he comes across, those intangibles should be informed just as much by the gospel of God's grace. And when people hear a message of grace coming across with a vibe of grace, hearts start to melt and we start getting down into a low place before the Lord where we belong and our hearts start to, to, to change at a deep level. And then the best things in life start happening. Not just when I understand, you know, the 8th century BC and when Isaiah lived. That's fine. But would please, somebody please show me Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you spoke about the context. Absolutely. The context is important. The chapter before, the chapter after. That is important. But the context is that every single verse that we have, every book that we have, is part of this big, giant story of, of God loving the world and setting in action a plan to demonstrate his love by saving sinners and, and remaking all that's been destroyed and, and setting us right. Like that's the context. That's the context that needs to govern every interpretation, every application, not just, well, the context is 46 BC, Corinth or whatever. That's important. But that ultimate, that meta narrative, it never should be forgotten. I really believe that. We, every preacher <clears throat> comes to the Bible with a pre-understanding. It's not just that we're interacting with the text of Scripture. We're also bringing to the text of Scripture the, the mental filter through which we read the text. And what's happened to me over the years is that that pre-understanding I always bring to the text has slowly changed. I'm not doomed 
to be stuck with the pre-legalistic, for me, legalistic pre-understanding I had for so many years. But that filter through which I perceive the Bible can itself be shaped by the Bible. Now, I wish it happened more quickly than it does. I wish I could, you know, the first time I read the Bible, bam, it all falls into place. All my misconceptions fall away. I see, I see Jesus in his grace and glory. I get it. And for the rest of my life, I know how to read the Bible. But for me personally, it took me years and years and years to get past a moralistic, legalistic, performance-based, anxiety-conducive, pressuring kind of um, uh, hermeneutic with which I read the Bible. But the Lord was so patient and so kind, and eventually he got through enough times that I had to adjust that pre-understanding I was bringing to the Bible. So um, I, I think I think it's Kevin Van Hooser who talks about the hermeneutical spiral. Yes. I it's like so, we, yeah. we, we keep looping around the Bible and slowly, slowly, slowly through multiple, multiple readings over the years, funnel down more and more closely to clarity, simplicity, and liberation. But God is patient. Yeah. You mentioned this change from that legalistic or however you phrase it there, that you said that, you know, it was a, a series of events or a series of like God's patiently dealing with you. Um, so it sounds like there wasn't just one big thunderclap where everything changed, but, but a process of bringing you from the earlier to the latter. Though I did go through a, a season of, I went through a gospel renaissance about 20 years ago, 25 years ago or so, when the doctrines of justification by faith alone, um, as articulated by Martin Luther, for example, in his commentary on Galatians and elsewhere, the doctrine of imputation, the doctrine of substitution, the doctrine of union with Christ, those central, glorious biblical doctrines came alive as never before. I began to see it all over the Bible. Um, and it changed. So I went through a, I think God hit the fast forward button there for about five years. And I just surged forward with tremendous joy. And I was never the same again. I did not want to go back. I was so grateful. Yeah, God is, is so kind. I, I've never heard that phrase gospel renaissance before, but I, um, maybe, maybe about 10 years ago, I was listening to a, a message, a sermon from uh, Timothy Keller uh, about gospel-centered uh, teaching or gospel-centered ministry. And I realized that is not characteristic of either my sermons or my ministry. And I remember I just like, slid out of my chair and got on my knees and said like, Lord, I'm so sorry. Like, would you please like create in me a clean heart, renew my enthusiasm for the gospel, stop preaching sermons where Jesus is a background character. Um, and, and, and please in my heart and in my ministry, allow him to be central. And I'd been in ministry for, for years and, and God had, you know, used some of my efforts in, and he's blessed them, but just the kindness of, of him gently and lovingly revealing that Jesus is amazing and the gospel is not boring and it's not about finding new angles on anything or 
doing character studies on minor characters and lifting them up and showing them how interesting Bartholomew is. Like, yeah, he's a wonderful individual, but, but Christ is glorious and people need to hear about the good news of Jesus. I really believe that. And then, Mike, about 10 or 15 years ago, I took another big step forward personally where um, I came to realize, as I said earlier, I, I, gospel doctrine had just sort of God detonated something wonderful in my, in my heart, in my mind. And then 10, 15 years ago, it was like I took the next, for me, next big step, that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. That real preaching is not an isolated event inside a worship service on Sunday morning. But real preaching is part of a whole new community this new message of good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit, that's the gospel. It creates a new, not just a new community in this broken world, but a new kind of community where people can breathe and let their guard down. And in a healthy church, they don't have to worry what's going to blindside them next. They don't have to wonder who's talking behind my back, who's going to undermine me next. They're finally, in the best sense, safe. And they can actually start talking about, start owning up to what isn't working in their lives. And confession of sin is not perceived as weird or exceptional, but it's just how we roll. And uh, in a healthy church, a gospel culture, a healthy church is not just the most honest church in town, it's the most honest anything in town, more than any bar or tavern or pub. Um, and people go there, and basically two things are happening. They're, they're savoring gospel doctrine. And as you just said, the, the Lord Jesus lifted up in his grace and glory for the undeserving. And they're enjoying together this gospel culture where they, it's like they, they, they finally feel like, oh, I belong. I've come home. This is what I've been looking for all my life. And um, they're looking around at each other thinking, can you believe we've landed here? Can you believe this could be real? And that's, that's actually the touchdown a preacher wants to score. It's not just preaching a good, good sermon, but creating a whole new kind of community. Yeah, and you, the, the only time I've heard you preach in real life was last year at the Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference in Costa Mesa. And you actually addressed this, this idea of you know, gospel doctrine, creating gospel culture. I know this is important to you and you've written about it and, and I heard you speak about it at least once. And maybe as the final question, I wanted to ask, like, what can a preacher do from the pulpit to facilitate not the gospel doctrine, which we've been talking about, but the gospel culture? Like, how can sermons build towards that? And then maybe a subsequent question is, what are the limits of the pulpit? Because certainly the pulpit can't do everything to create the culture. But, but with what little that we can do, how can we work towards that culture of gospel? that You talked about it, a vibe of grace. How can our, our preaching create a vibe of grace or a culture of liberation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Mike. I wish I had a better answer. But, I mean, really, let's spend the rest of our lives thinking that one through. <laughs> that would so not be a right. waste of time. Um, but it's good to realize preaching can't do everything. As significant as it is, preaching alone, it can gather a crowd, but it can't create a community. 
There's a difference between a crowd and a community. It's the difference between a jar filled with pennies. If you pour it out, the pennies scatter all over the floor. That's a crowd. That's an event. But the New Testament says a healthy community is a body. You can't split up that body without killing it. And so how do we become a body together uh, where we give life to one another? Here's my here's a suggestion that some of us will absolutely love and others of us won't like. (laughs) What if the pastor, as part of his preaching, wisely and without self-display, without making himself the issue, but keeping Christ at the forefront, nevertheless, he inserts along the way admissions about his own weakness, his own needs, his own shortcomings, um, such that the people begin to realize, oh, we, we can actually be honest here together. The pastor sets the tone, both in the doctrine of the church and in the culture of the church. And if the pastor never opens up, nobody will open up, except in exceptional moments. But if the pastor does open up, you know what it's like, Mike, when you're at a dinner party and with friends and the food is great, and everything's pleasant, everybody's having a great time. And then somebody at that dinner table opens up and gets real and becomes honest and starts talking about something that's really hard in their life, something that isn't working in their life. And suddenly everybody in the room realizes, oh, we're going there. The ground rules in this room just changed and everybody relaxes and becomes sort of awestruck and solemnized in a very gentle, powerful way. And they all go into that honesty together. That is the great privilege of a pastor as part of, as one strand in the tapestry of his preaching. Yeah, and um, I think it was uh, De Goat. I can't think of his first name. Um, anyway, a, a writer by the name of De Goat. <laughs> um, he he writes about um, phonability, not not true vulnerability. But in his like book on narcissism, he talks about like faux, like false vulnerability, and pointing out that a lot of preachers these days have this pretend vulnerability. And I wonder how can we move from just being real or being open and honest because that's what we do, that's what you should do, and then moving into actual uncomfortable territory of the real the real me coming out. Like how many, I've heard so many sermons growing up of people saying, pastors saying, listen, I'm just like you. I get mad in traffic just like everybody else. Like that's like the the safe sin to confess. I get mad in traffic. Um, can you maybe guide us towards like an more real confessions of realness that aren't as faux as that? Well, we're so, sadly, we're so corrupt that we can ruin everything. There's nothing glorious we can't diminish and corrupt. Um, and to it's the devil's ultimate masterpiece to take confession and make it into a form of concealment. And I don't know what to say if that's where we're going, if that's what we're doing. Uh, wow, we really need to go into profound repentance. 
mean, if that's what's happening, why? What is going on? That's coming out of a deep place of self-falsification. And if we're doing that in front of the congregation, then we're also doing it before the Lord. So that's when a, a guy might need to take a year off of ministry and just, I don't know, go off in the desert. Well, on that encouraging note, our time is up. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching the clock and then I'm, I'm realizing, oh, 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 I asked that question and now it's steering into real abysmal stuff. <laughs> um, do you have a, a hopeful word of encouragement for us? So, so some people may have just scheduled a year off and walked off into the desert, but uh, for the rest of us that are still preaching, like what? Give us something encouraging to to end our conversation on. Well, I'm sure you feel as I do, Mike, in that really, what I really want to be involved in is the next great awakening, <laughs> the next mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and we know that. As we, as we see in Isaiah chapter 40, and as we see in um, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist came preaching repentance, and people were confessing their sins, and that opened the door to the advent of Christ. And it, it, that's the pattern throughout the Bible. What if half of the pastors, it, let's say just the, in the United States, what if half of us resign? because we've just come to realize and face the fact we're not ready, we're not qualified, why are we doing this? Just to have a paycheck, that's not a good enough reason. What if half of us resign? Would that be a setback for the cause of Christ? I don't think so. It might be the breakthrough. That might be the very tipping point that we could reach when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on us as we have never seen before. Wouldn't that be glorious? Yeah. You know, the, the, the rocks could cry out or just like I said to um, Elijah, you know, he has thousands that have not bent their knee to Baal. So, yeah, may we keep from thinking that that we're somehow vital or essential or that he needs us. Yeah. Well, thank you. On, on that note, um, Ray, would you mind closing us in prayer and praying for the, the Bible teachers and preachers and the pastors that that we could have this gospel doctrine like firmly be in front of us and that we can create even through our own self-abasement or our own honesty about ourselves create these vibes of grace in our congregations that might even lead towards the next great awakening and mike i just want to before i pray i want to say thank you to you personally for doing this podcast thank you for creating the the expositors collective and every guy who's listening to this Let's stick together. Let's be honest with each other. Let's comfort and encourage each other. Let's keep following the Lord and pressing on whatever it takes. And I know the Lord will bless that with his grace and favor. All right, Lord, you've heard uh, everything we've said during our time together. Everything that was pleasing to you, we pray, will stick and bear fruit. Everything, not so much, let it be forgotten. We refer this to you now, and we do pray for an historic outpouring of your power upon us all by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And thank you so much, Ray. I really, really do appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Wow. Amen. Amen to that. 
And thank you once again, Ray, for your time. Thank you for your, your kind words and your helpful words as, as well. So as promised, I have a teaser for next week's episode. But you know what? Before that, I want to invite you to save the date. You know, here at Expositors Collective, our primary ministry is uh, these Bible teaching and preaching training weekends that we've put on. We put them on in the U.S. and in Europe, and we'd love to put them on in other parts of the world. Uh, But as with everything else, it's been on pause lately. So earlier in the uh, lockdown, we had our first uh, preaching webinar that was very well attended, very well received, and was a wonderful evening, a wonderful time together. It was evening for me, but morning for you, depending on what time zone you're in. But it was a great time together, and we're actually going to do another one. September 19th is is the date. Uh, I believe it's going to be in the morning time for the U.S., and we're going to have more details as regards to the topic and the guest speaker. That's going to be coming. So if you're not connected to us on social media, you should follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, um, or you can even visit expositorscollective.com because in the next few days, we're going to have details about our next free event, another online training event on how to teach and preach with power, clarity, and authority. So save the date, September 19th. I'd love to see you on Zoom. Now, speaking with, sorry, speaking about speaking with clarity, uh, that really ties in to next week's episode. I get to speak to uh, Pastor David Downs, who is a serial church planter in Italy. He is in the middle of his third church plant in uh, the city of Turin or Torino in Italy. And I speak to him about the importance of clarity in preaching and clarity in communication. I'm going to leave you with a sample of that conversation. And I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday when the episode comes out. I hope that this and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. And I think sometimes for me, I think I'm doing a better job if I'm saying the same thing with less words, because if you're, you're just more precise, like a, a rock skipping across a river and you're skipping this rock, you're just hitting mm. real quickly these points. There's just something I think that st- it sticks more in people's hearts. And so I've come to a place even recently of really just trying to have a title for my message rather than just saying Galatians chapter two. Mm. Mm. And having like this main point, having this thesis statement, and then having three supporting points, you know, just to kind of enforce that main idea. Because it is, I mean, that's what Jesus did, right? The parables, it was to convey one idea, right? It was just one thought. I'm not going to give everything to somebody in one sit, one sitting, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't, we, not, none of us know everything about God yet. You know, we're growing in the knowledge of who he is. Yes. And Ephesians 2, for for eternity to come, we're going to be learning of the richness of his mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. So, um, 
so sometimes I think we make that mistake of thinking I got to give all of this now or quickly or you know and uh, yeah so I've, I've been trying in this recent church plant to do that better to say less to say one thing with the Sunday sermon mm. and to be more precise 